So on this uh, day close to the winter solstice, I want to explore again the theme that we looked at last time, which I called gradual awakening and immediate awakening. Really looking at two models of practice. <coughs> One of them, the intention is to cultivate qualities like mindfulness or concentration or our ethical qualities and to keep on developing them gradually in a way which is seen to help move us towards a deep freedom and ultimately towards the, the goal of enlightenment or nibbana. That's the stated intention of Buddhist practice and really comparable to what we find in many, many traditions. And so on that gradual path, we have a gradual awakening. We develop further. We keep on developing. And we do practices. We know what to do and so forth. And that's one very crucial map. As I mentioned last time, I think it's the primary model or map that we use at Spirit Rock. It's encouraging everyone to practice, come on Wednesday mornings, keep on doing this, go to retreats, keep on developing mindfulness, and we develop. But there's another understanding of awakening, which is that of a more immediate awakening. And it actually can inform also a model of practice or a way of practice. On that understanding, we can access awakening not just as the fruit of a long, uh, a long training, but rather that awakening is accessible here and now. And that there are practices that help us to open in that way. And so, in a way, looking at these two approaches is a way of having a pretty broad overview of all of what we do in practice can give a pretty comprehensive map. So I want to explore again in a little more detail than I did last time the nature of this gradual path, the nature of the emphasis on more immediate awakening, and do some practices, some, continue with some practices which help us to um, access awakening in a more immediate way, right here. You know, so so that's my theme, and I'll hope also to leave time to talk about these, uh, these themes uh, with particular reference to those who may have explored in the last week some of the practices that, we, that I uh, brought up, or your own version of those practices I brought up. So first, some about the gradual path. Um, we use different metaphors. Again, this is, I think, the primary understanding of how we practice and why we practice that's given in the teachings of the Buddha. It's the primary way that we talk here. As I mentioned last time, virtually all of the talks that we give and a lot of the guidance is about helping us to gradually develop the core qualities of mindfulness, equanimity, wisdom, ethical integrity, um, generosity, compassion, an open heart, and so forth. Wonderful sense of practice that we, we do this and we gradually develop these qualities. So the emphasis is on development, on learning, on training. We use different metaphors. Metaphors might be that of following a path. You know, the path is something that we continually walk on. We are on a path somewhere. <laughs> There's a goal. You know, it might be that the proverbial path through the plains and up the mountain, and then at the top of the mountain we are awakened, something like that. So there's a path is one metaphor that we use. Training, we might use the metaphor of becoming continually more refined, Many of the metaphors used in the text are about the way that um, uh, maybe uh, someone working with precious metals 
will refine the metals. Things will become shinier and purer. That's us, right? And another metaphor that's used is the tending of a fruit tree, that we have to put in this energy to take care of the soil, do the pruning, uh, make sure there's enough water and uh, further nutrients for the fruit tree. And then at the end of that process, we have a fruit. We have the fruit of our, of our practice, as it were. And in fact, that metaphor is used a lot. Sometimes even the understanding of the goal of practice is talked about as the fruition of practice. And so that's a very, very, there are all these different uh, metaphors used. Another metaphor that's used is that of purification. And these are all metaphors of gradual practice. And so we also may be said to be purifying ourselves, both in the sense of finding those impure, so to speak, qualities of ourselves, our greed, hatred, and delusion, and um, having less of that, having some of that um, purified, as it were, out of our system. And the second sense of purification is that we develop in, we might say, purer qualities. We both, as it were, refine the impure, and we uh, develop the purer qualities like mindfulness or love or compassion and so forth. So those are, those are uh, very, very common metaphors. You know, generally, the, the core of the practice that we actually do involves something that's very much like, that very much follows that metaphor of purification. That is, we notice a lot of our um, habits, our conditioning, our patterns that seem to lead to suffering. We may notice, um, for example, self-judgment. Or I may notice the way that I'm very reactive when someone criticizes me. You know, and I maybe criticize myself and I criticize others. Or when something unpleasant happens, I may blame others or blame myself. And a lot of our practice is studying all of these patterns. You know, studying what we do when there's... Um, anger, when there's sadness, when there's grief, when there's loneliness, when there's fear. And again, a lot of our talks are on, are on how to be skillful when these situations arise. You know, a large part of our practice is just on how to work with the difficulties, how to see more clearly the patterns, how to work with difficult emotions, difficult thoughts, how to stabilize our attention so that we can do that better. So on the one hand, we look at the difficulties, and on the other hand, we bring out more fully these beautiful qualities of mindfulness, compassion, loving-kindness, wisdom, integrity, generosity. These are the famous uh, lists that we find in the Buddhist text of the qualities to be developed that are uh, given in models like the seven factors of awakening, or the Eightfold Path, you know, develop in clarity of intention, develop in your speech, develop in your, um, in your ethics, develop in mindfulness, concentration, and so forth. In this kind of gradual path where we're both, as it were, uh, purifying those places where we find tendencies to suffering, or when we're developing these other qualities, um, effort's quite important. You know, I have to practice. I have to develop that effort. Effort, repetition, patience. The path takes a while. <laughs> right? There's, a, there's one line in the... Let me see if I can find this. Uh, there's one line in the, in the text where the Buddha says... I do not say that final knowledge is achieved all at once. On the contrary, final knowledge is achieved by gradual training, by gradual practice, by gradual progress. And so that's a familiar, that's a familiar model. And so what's, how does awakening come into that model? Another very common phrase that's used in the text is we, we inch and slope and incline towards freedom, towards Nibbana. 
that sense of freedom or Nibbana is understood as the overcoming in one model of all greed, hatred, and delusion. So we can see and we can follow this path and we can notice, well, I was once greedy about this and this year I've looked at that and I'm not greedy. You know, where I'm, I don't have the same reactivity. So when we ask the question, what does this path really feel like from the inside? You know, and this might be really to ask what, if you explored what this is like last week, it would be, you might have reflected on these qualities. And I was asking the question, what does this really feel like from the inside? What do these aspects of uh, the aspects of the gradual path feel like? And there may be a sense that um, when we look at ourselves over time, I'm learning. We may have a sense of development or learning. We may sense, well, well, I didn't realize my mind worked like this five years ago, and now I'm really clear about that pattern. You know, and so we can often see when we practice the fruits of the practice very clearly. You know, that, that um, um, previously with um, a person important in my life, I had this reaction very commonly. I meditated, I looked at it, I worked with it, and now I don't have it in the same way, except when I'm ambushed. <laughs> Which still happens occasionally, but then I remember, oh, I can practice, right? And so we may have, we may have that sense. We may, we may think, well, you know, I'm, mindfulness is there more for me when I'm actually um, maybe having a challenging time. I'm more likely to think, oh, let me just be aware of what's happening. You know, and that may be very different from five years ago, ten years ago. The Dalai Lama said, look at your practice in five or ten year increments. Don't get too worried about a week or two. <laughs> right? And so when we look, we may see that development. And it's that quality of noticing development that is um, so basic that a number of people who've wanted to connect meditative traditions with Western psychology have focused on the theme of development and connected meditation with different writers, for example, in developmental psychology, like Piaget or Kohlberg or Robert Keegan, people like that, who's a, a writer at, at Harvard, contemporary developmental writer, so that there can be often a connection that we can look, talk about developmental steps or stages in meditation as well as in other parts of our life. So, Development's a concept we're very familiar with, right? From raising children or going to school or whatever. So that's a very, one very fundamental aspect of this gradual path. Another fundamental aspect is that we have a pretty clear map. We may have a sense of, I know what to do to develop. You know, and I, know, I may know how I'm developing. I'm developing towards less reactivity, less greed less um, confusion. And I may see that clearly when, again, when I look year to year. Uh, I may know, I have a sense of what are the roots of suffering. I may know that it's a kind of grasping and reactivity, a pushing away, a grabbing hold of. And I may, and, and the map can be very clear in that sense, that freedom is the absence of that. Here are practices that help me uncover all the different ways that I'm reactive, that I'm that I grab hold of things in a, as if that would make me happy or push things away because I don't want to experience something unpleasant. We look at that and we have a very clear and simple, in a way, illuminating map of, of how we develop, how we suffer, and the possibility of greater freedom. It's great to have that clarity. Most of us didn't grow up particularly knowing what we were doing. I'll speak for myself. <laughs> Does that anyone else relate to that? You know, we didn't have we didn't have some overall map which makes practical sense. We may have had religions which were kind of an overarching metaphysical model, but I certainly didn't have a very clear practical sense of development other than just to be a good person, which is quite important. So, 
Another aspect of our experience of this gradual path may be that there are practices which actually work. We may say, okay, I do this and I can more easily work with difficult emotions or difficult thoughts. So we, part of that sense of the gradual path is that there may be a sense of efficacy or things working. and we can, That can lead to a certain amount of faith or in a way I can rest in this model. Right? It, can be, it can be a container for my life, which is incredibly important and powerful. I can frame my life around developing these core qualities. So it can give a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose, a sense of clarity. And there may also be a sense of not having anxiety about getting to the end of the path. There may be a sense of faith or a sense of I'm doing my best or whatever it is. We may be held by that path. And there can be also a sense of knowing that we're relating also maybe to teachers and exemplars who seem further down this path than me, which can also help frame the whole sense of a gradual path. Okay, here are those people. They've been doing it longer than me or deeper than me, and look where they are. You know, look, look at, look at, and you know, it's, and that's, that's very real in being on this path, having exemplars and teachers and people both people we meet in person and people we read about and so forth. And so, wonderful path, what more do we need, right? End of the talk, practice, have a good solstice, have a good Christmas, Kwanzaa, hope Hanukkah was okay, you know, and so forth. So, um, but we looked at also last time that in a way, the way I'm framing this is that the gradual sense of awakening needs to be balanced by the immediate sense of awakening and that either without the other can be unbalanced. And so what are the possible pitfalls of our beloved gradual path? Well, one of them is, is that we may lose sense of the goal. We may be very focused on the gradual path, but where are we going? You know, we may not have much sense of it, and there was a, one, of the, one of our famous contemporary yogis has a very profound statement on what happens when you don't have a clear sense of where you're going. This is the famous yogi named Yogi Berra. <laughs> he once said, if you don't know where you're going, you'll wind up somewhere else. no doubt reflecting deeply on the gradual path and a possible pitfall of that, of that approach. And so we can maybe, if, the, if that sense of immediate awakening isn't there more, we may not really know where we're going. We may do these practices and the sense of where we're going may not be very real or alive in our, in our practice. There's an interesting story, I think it's from Burma, of a man who every day said, please, by these practices, may I quickly and swiftly be brought to nirvana. And he said these every day. And some of his friends doubted whether he was really sincere about this, and they devised a practical joke. And they... they um, decided that he did this at the end of the workday. They decided at the end of the workday there would be a bunch of people in costumes and they'd have a lot of flashing lights and they would masquerade as heavenly figures who were taking him to nirvana. So one evening they pulled off this prank and they came to him and said, and he, at the end of his meditations he said, and by these practices, may I swiftly be taken to nirvana. And right at that moment, lights flashed, and they said, we are here to take you to nirvana. And his response was, um, how, how about tomorrow? <laughs> um, you know, I, I should go home and tell my wife first, and we should 
make some arrangements, and could you come back a little later? And it's a, it's a parable, right? It's a parable for um, the question of whether those words, how meaningful they were and how hollow they were. You know, there, some of those words are about nirvana are chanted often in, in Buddhist context, often in a, in a perhaps hollow way. This is what Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu says. He's one of the great teachers of the 20th century who died about 15 years ago. Um, he wrote this, in the schools, children are taught that Nibbana is the death of an arhat. The ordinary person in the street has been taught that it's a special city empty of pain and chock full of the happiness of fulfilled wishes supposedly reached after death by those who store up perfections over <clears throat> tens of thousands of lifetimes. Students in general consider nirvana a matter for devout old folks at the temple with nothing of relevance for them. Young men and women think it's bland and unexciting, awful and frightening. All the candidates for the monkhood merely mouth without understanding what they say, may I go forth in order to awaken to Nibbana. The old monks say Nibbana can't happen anymore in this day and age. So finally, Nibbana has become a secret that no one cares about. They've turned it into something barren and silent, buried away in the scriptures, to be paid occasional lip service in sermons while no one really knows what it is. It's a strong statement, right? And he was really looking at the scene in Thailand. So that's, that's a possible pitfall of the gradual path, or actually of, of losing touch with that sense of... Um, awakening. And we can also uh, perhaps get caught up and attached even to the gradual path. I can get very attached to my practice, my mindfulness, my meditation. You know, I can get, I can get attached to that. Uh, the Tibetan teacher Trungpa Rinpoche called that spiritual materialism. When I actually use the aspects, in this case, of the gradual path, for the purposes of aggrandizing self or ego. Here, let me show you my new meditation cushion. <laughs> or whatever. I think, you know, and, and we can see this. We can see this in ourselves. We can see this around us and so forth. So those are some of the pitfalls, the two main ones being that awakening just doesn't have meaning for us. We do the practice, but what, what's the goal? The goal doesn't have a clear meaning. And the second one being that we get attached in various ways to aspects of the gradual path, which is supposed to be about learning not to be attached. Okay, so, okay, so enter the second possibility, immediate awakening. <laughs> and again, this is in the traditional text. Um, I mentioned the, the chant that's done in uh, monasteries continually. There's a, there's a uh, chant that goes um, usually near the end of the chant, Swakato Bhagavato Damo Sanditiko Agaliko Ehipasiko Opanayiko Pachitamwe Ditapo Winyuhiti, which is um, actually listing some of the six aspects of awakening that are mentioned. And it's really focusing on many of the immediate qualities of awakening. I mentioned last time sanditiko means, means um, available, here and now, visible. It's connected with roots having to do with the vision. And agaliko means um, immediate or out of time, very present right now. Um, Ehipasiko means come and look and see what's there. It's that sense of this awakening not being something that's hidden in the clouds of the mountain in the future, but rather present right now. And Pachitamwe Ditapo Winyuhiti means experienceable directly by the wise. So in that sense, awakening is not taken to be something abstract or forever um, sort of uh, receding from our attention. And one way of looking at it is that it's, there, there are really two aspects that we can look at, this sense of freedom that's called nirvana or nibbana, 
there, there are at least two aspects of it. Literally, Nibbana has to do with a, a kind of cooling of what are taken to be the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. So Nibbana is actually, in the original languages, would be a very ordinary word that's used, for example, when you extinguish a fire, you know, in a fireplace. That would be, you would be, you'd be nibbanizing or nirvanizing the fire. <laughs> so it's a very ordinary word that's used. And it has to do with moments when we are not caught by self, by greed, by attachment, by confusion. And when there's just a quality of being present without any, without any of that greed, hatred, delusion. So it's simple in that way. You know, it's, uh, we don't need to be metaphysical about enlightenment. It's simply the absence of those qualities. Uh, there was a teacher that I met a number of times uh, named Deepama. There's a book on her life. She was one of the great teachers of the 20th century. And there, um, um, Jack Kornfield once, once asked her, what's your mind like? And he said, there are three qualities in my mind. Concentration, peace, and love. That's it. That was, that was, that's in a way an understanding of, of Nibbana. And so these two ways I'm referring to is that there's something like what we might call a small Nibbana or a small Nirvana. Nibbana is the word in Pali, N-I-B-B-A-N-A, and Nirvana is the word in Sanskrit. They're the same word, same meaning. And so a small Nibbana would be any moment in which we're there with clarity, without greed, hatred, and delusion. And we have those moments all the time. The, what the practice does and what this practice is particularly connected with immediate awakening do, is they lay that, let us focus a little more fully on those moments, expand them, have there be more of those moments, and gradually stabilize that kind of freedom as our natural state, like Deepama apparently did. Concentration, peace, and love, that's what's there. She didn't start off like that. You read her story, she came to practice quite late, I think in her middle 40s or so, after a series of profound losses, deaths in her family, the death of her husband, I think of one or two of her children. And she came to practice and she took to it quite, quite strongly. But her mind was caught up, but she, came, she went through this practice and came to this. So we can find, that, uh, find those qualities in these, in, in these two ways, that it's just these small moments. And then when the, there are enough of those moments, there's a stabilizing of that, there can be a deepened experience of Nibbana. So I think that's maybe helpful to look at. What that does is that means that the goal is both about those small moments, which are accessible to all of us right now, and it's also about the gradual stabilization. So this emphasis on immediate awakening itself has both an immediate and a gradual aspect. It's kind of like the yin-yang, that the gradual approach can have the immediate in it, and the immediate approach has both an immediate and a gradual approach, if you're following me, kind of like those interpenetration of the two opposites. So, so so how do, we, how do we access that kind of, let's say, how do we access that kind of what we might, what uh, Buddha Dasa calls it little Nibbana or small Nibbana. These very accessible moments where there's just freedom. And there are a few different ways to look at it. and a few different ways to access. In the sense of the, the small Nibbana being about an absence of greed, hatred, or delusion, sometimes we can access it simply by a kind of letting go. 
a main way of practicing is to notice that I'm caught. And as uh, Julia said, notice that I'm caught, I'm distracted, I get a, a broom and I sweep it out. And in a sense, I sweep it out, or another metaphor would be, I find myself caught. I say, I don't need to do this. Don't go there, Donald. And I let go of it. Not so easy, right? But when practice, we can do that more. And in fact, in some of the traditions focused on immediate awakening, that sense of letting go is a primary metaphor. In some Tibetan traditions, there's actually, um, one uses hand gestures to kind of just let go, like that. Or there may be, um, in Zen, there might be a kind of a, one gets startled, in a sense, to let go in that, in that immediate moment. You know, so letting go is a primary way to access that. Not easy, of course, but we can let, we, we practice by letting go of smaller ways we get entangled first, right? And then we get up to the bigger ones. So you're just noting yourself going around distracted by some stray thoughts. We can just come back to being present. It's not dramatic necessarily, but you just come back like that. That would be an example of accessing this kind of immediate awakening or accessing little Nibbana. Little Nibbana is really good news, isn't it? I mean, that's what, we can call it something else. Maybe that wouldn't go over too well in the West, but that's what Buddha Dasa called it. Little Nibbana or small Nibbana. You know, so we can, do, we can do it in a variety of ways. We can access it maybe through a kind of letting go. Some of us may access that sense of uh, not having greed, hatred, delusion through love. You know, if we do a lot of the loving-kindness practice, we may know when we're stuck, I can come back to a sense of my heart being open and radiant, even if it just lasts for 30 seconds. I can do that, right? Because the essence of these, um, as it were, immediate awakening practices is that we do them for small amounts of time, many, many, many times. I actually had a dream two nights ago where it was kind of interesting. I, I must, this had been on my mind. And I had a dream two nights ago where I was um, committing and having other people also commit to coming back to this immediate awakening a hundred times a day, kind of to this small awakening and doing it a hundred times a day, which could just mean you're distracted, you notice, let go. And maybe do some variety of that a hundred times a day. And I was giving out uh, these uh, golf clickers that, you know, that, so you can count them. Right? In the dream that was there. You can, so you can actually count up to a hundred and have it around with you. I think I got this from Guy Armstrong, who teaches here, who actually did that. He had, he had something where he could just be at meetings and just go, okay, let go. Okay, one. <laughs> okay. okay, five minutes later, let go. Two. And do this, and the, the goal was to do it a hundred times during the day, and that was in my dream. I was dreaming about this, saying this would be a very good idea. <laughs> it's an interesting way to practice. Any of you want to take that? I don't, you know, I don't have, I don't think we have in the Spirit Rock bookstore, you know, these clickers, you know, or I don't even know what they're called, but I don't actually play golf or, um, but but something, some device that you can just um, keep on counting, right? Anyone know what they're called? Yeah. Some people are using for knitting. Yeah. Yeah, just something that keeps, that, that's a manual counter that you just do that. Anyway, that's a way to do it. I'm actually serious if any of you would like to do that. Yeah. Um, may I ask you a question, please? Um, why don't we wait? I'm going to finish in about five or ten minutes. Why don't we wait till that? So, so we might do it through... So I think what I'm inviting is to find a personal way that we know that can help us come back to this more open presence. It could be to come back to the open heart. It could be just to let go. It could be to just come back to a fundamental mindfulness, such as mindfulness of the body. You know, something that I do quite often is I just come back and say, let me just be present right now in my body and just be there in that way. Or it could be to come back, this is what I think um, you brought up last time, it could be to come back to a sense of spaciousness and being with a large spaciousness is, is 
very close to a kind of equanimity. It could be to come back, let me just have open awareness with space. And let me just find a way to do that for 30 seconds. So I keep coming back. And so in these approaches, we find these different methods. In the Tibetan uh, traditions, there are all these different methods for accessing in the Dzogchen and Mahamudra traditions. It's accessing a kind of open, free awareness. And one accesses it just for 30 seconds or a minute to start with. And then you learn to stabilize. And there are a variety of techniques. I mentioned some of them. Some of them is, is startling people. And then that split second after startling, tune into that kind of awareness. Because typically, there's no, nothing going on right in that moment. That's a technique that's used. It's used some techniques like that in Zen. Or um, the Zen koans you know, are a technique used in Zen also, where one contemplates something that basically uh, um, incapacitates the logical mind. <laughs> you know, so you say, what was, your, what was your original face before your mother and father were born? <laughs> and you sit with that until the mind kind of gives up, right? And it can, for many of us, it can take a long time. But that's, you just keep asking, what was your original face? Or, you know, the famous one, what is the sound of one hand clapping? So we can understand those kind of practices, which... Uh, may be, in one sense, humorous, but they're actually very serious practices that are designed to access these moments of immediate awakening. They may be very brief or short, but if we do them more, if we can access them more and more, we can stabilize more and more, so they become our ordinary mind. That's really the intention of this second approach. And so the second approach... um, can also be, can also have its problems. People can think that immediate awakening is always present. Why should I meditate? Or they may try to do those kind of practices without having done the gradual practices of cultivating mindfulness and concentration, and they'll find that they can't stabilize very well that the practices, uh, we might say, of the gradual path are really prerequisites for having the immediate awakening really take hold. That would be my view. And I've, you know, I think I, I don't know if I mentioned this last time, I don't think I did, but one of the Tibetan teachers, uh, Sokni Rinpoche, who often comes here, he said in introducing Dzogchen practices, which are very much about immediate awakening, like ways of just, okay, right now, be awake. And there are techniques to get there. He said that the best preparation for that is doing Vipassana practice. Even better, he thought, than some of the Tibetan preliminary practices, because one develops in mindfulness and concentration, and then one can, one can stabilize. And so, a danger of the second approach would be that one neglects the cultivation of these core qualities and you never get anywhere. And there are a lot of examples of that. You know, um, a teacher uh, that many of you may know, Krishnamurti, taught something like that quality of immediate awakening. And there's often in those approaches a poo-pooing of the uh, gradual path. Often there is, you know. So let me see if I can find one expression of this. One of the great uh, teachers of this immediate awakening in the Indian tradition, the Saraha, he said, he said this, kind of really criticizing the way that we can get caught up with the gradual path and make it be self-centered. He said, mantras and tantras, meditation and concentration are all a cause of self-deception. Do not defile in contemplation thought that is pure in its own nature, but abide in the bliss of yourself and cease these torments of meditation. <laughs> hmm. So, what do you think of that? <laughs> so, but that would be the danger of that would be he was actually saying that to people probably who had, who had been practicing for 20 years. And he was pointing to the way we can get caught in the practices. And so, 
What I'm suggesting is that these are wonderful compliments. That if we, for most of us, we're probably very much focusing on the gradual path, it can really be an enhancement to our practice to bring in the sense of immediate awakening. If we've been focused more on immediate awakening and we've been finding it elusive, then the gradual practices are very helpful. Probably for most of us, it's more of the former case. So I'm going to end just by, um, again, for those not here last time, giving an example of a gradual of an immediate awakening practice. And I mentioned a number of them, and some of you may have them. It's really that way that we come back to center or to a sense of fullness, a sense of presence, of being separate from being caught, really. And again, I mentioned a variety of ways we can do that. So what I'd like to invite us to do is just for three or four minutes to just access what works for you. Again, it could be just coming to awareness of the body. It could be coming to a sense of your heart being present and full. It could be a sense of let go. Just let go and rest in awareness, something like that. And for those who would like a little guidance, I'll give a practice we did last time. And those of you who want to just do something else could, um, could go ahead right now. So one practice I gave last time was to first let yourself move to a more contracted state. We'll move from that to a more awakened state. But first go to a contracted state. You might think of sometime in the last few days or week when you were caught in some kind of suffering. And bring those thoughts to mind and let your body actually take the form that you were in. If I was, let's say, in uh, a kind of self-judgment in the last week which caught me for a while, my chest might be caved in, I might be, my body might be tense. And just really let yourself go to that contracted place with even some of the thoughts that may have been there. But really feel from the inside the way your body is, what those thoughts are, what the emotions are. Now gradually let yourself come to what we might call a more awake place. You can use different metaphors, empowered, alive, energized. And let this take over your body. If you want to stand up or move, that's fine. I've been just doing this for a few minutes. In particular, notice those parts of your body. Personally, I find that being aware of the body is a very wonderful way to both notice contraction and to access awakened states. Let your body go to this place that you know to be empowered or awakened. For me, my spine is straight, my hands are open, my chest is open, and so forth. And just be present in that with that more awakened state. As we, as we finish this uh, brief exercise, just tune in right now to how your body and consciousness are. A kind, make a kind of, we might call almost like a bookmark that helps you access this more easily in the future. It can be a kind of body memory which can help you get there. We'll come back to being present together. As I mentioned, I like to mention, uh, if 
feel free to keep this awake, empowered state that you might be in right now, at least for the rest of the morning, possibly for the rest of your lives. And so we'll come back to actually to uh, just talking together for, for the rest of the period. So the idea here, again, with these what we can call immediate awakening to little Nibbana or little awakening, is that there are ways that we can do this in a very, um, just in a way that's in a way modest, but that is a kind of letting go that we can connect with. And it's possible to just do this many times during a day. If you want to have that clicker, do it 50 times or 100 times a day. And gradually the qualities stabilize. It's another way to practice. Other than, you know, the gradual path, the usual way we do it, we'd practice maybe half an hour, 45 minutes in the morning or something like that. That has its value. And then we try our best to bring practice in the rest of our days. This is a little bit different way of practicing, right? It's going for small awakenings many times. And I think it's very nice as a compliment because it's something you can do at a meeting without people looking. You don't have to close your eyes to do it, right? You can do it at a meeting. You do it driving. Do it waiting for a bus. Do it over um, a holiday meal. So I hope, I hope this uh, connects with you and be interested in your any questions or, or discussion. <coughs> Please. Yeah. And it was interesting because it, it seemed to inspire awakening in my dog as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? I, I find that very helpful too. There are some Tibetan practices where one just goes like this. And it's kind of just, just be aware. <laughs> and it can be very effective. It kind of, you can just clap to yourself like that. And that can sometimes just quiet. We're not looking for anything that lasts for more than a short time. But doing it a lot of times can be effective. So it's to find what works for you. For me, the clapping works or just something that you know, I think it's, it's almost like, almost like has, might have resonance like in shamanic traditions, the sound of the drum, right? Just boom, like that. And something shifts with our nervous system. Interesting. Um, Carrie, please. <laughs> but it was amazing because it, the rule is everybody has to stop for just 10 seconds yeah. and breathe, you know? And it diffuses, the power of that to diffuse anything and bring people back is such an amazing little yeah. it's a It's a great little tool and it's similar to, some of you may have learned about what's called the awakening bell from Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese teacher. And he, in his community, is often... Uh, if there was a talk or whatever is going on, one would ring the bell like that every 20 minutes or every 30 minutes. And the invitation would just be to come back to yourself for a minute or two. Actually, I think they say three breaths, right? Come back to yourself for three breaths. And many people have applied those to meetings. When I was on the board of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, we used to do that at our meetings to just ring the bell, and it also can be used strategically, like you're saying, when people get caught, right? Especially if people are practitioners and they get caught, which occasionally happens, <laughs> uh, one can ring the bell, and uh, typically it's very different. You just come back to yourself and it's very different. 30 seconds makes a huge difference, right? I, I've seen that in meetings a lot. Please. Yeah. I came to my friend and I said, what's he letting go of? 
Is it more that you're inviting concentration, love, and peace? Mm -hmm. Or what's the letting go? Getting stuck in conflict or um, doubt? Or what's it, it could be. It could letting go. I kept going, well, I wonder what he's letting go of. Well, the main things that we're letting go uh, are greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, in the classical text. So it could be dependent on the situation. It could be different. You know, if in terms of just clapping, it may be letting go of distraction, which is a form of delusion, right? My mind just might be you know, wandering around, and I clap, and I'm alert for that moment, right? That would be letting go of delusion. We could call it other things, letting go of distraction, right? And if I'm if I'm caught, you know, if I'm thinking, you know, if I'm in the situation like Carrie's describing, where I'm in a little bit of a entangled, maybe um, antagonistic, possibly relationship with someone, ring the bell. I let go maybe of a certain amount of aversion, right? That would be what I would let go of. So it could be different depending on the circumstances, but a lot of it, if we, if nothing particular is happening, it might be more distraction or the or the quality of not really being present. Good question. Thanks. Thank um, please. First of all, I really want to thank you for bringing this topic because in my situation, we have people that are always saying, if it helps me to ease my own life right now. Yeah. It's a good question. It's, uh, I'll repeat it some. Did everyone hear? So it was a, que uh, there a lot of things in the, in the comments and question, but what I particularly found myself focusing on was um, the way in which uh, you were saying that in a way it's, uh, there can be a very, very full kind of immediate awakening that the, what I'm calling immediate awakening maybe can have different degrees of depth. And, and, and that some of these are just, you know, letting go of distraction. In the, some of the Tibetan traditions that I've trained in, the claim is that it's possible to access, in methods some, somewhat similar to this, uh, a state of awareness which is actually equivalent to being awake. And is actually taken to be quite deep, taken to be beyond any subject-object split. And, and, and can be something which is taken to be touching even for a short time. I read a quote last time from, from um, uh, one of the teachers who a lot of people have studied with named Tolku uh, Ugin. And he talks about this being that one can actually access what he calls Buddha nature, something quite deep and profound. And I'm, I, am, I think that's a good question because I am recognizing a spectrum here a spectrum of levels of depth. And I'm, in some traditions, one goes for that very, very deep place. And in other approaches, I think it's just, um, there's a continuum maybe with that deep place, but it might not be, it, there may, might still be a sense of self being there, right, with, with, uh, with um, the awareness. But what we're, what we're moving towards is a sense of fairly, um, for short times, 
something that has some, some degree of purity to it, whether it's the open heart or a kind of very open awareness or a lack of hanging on or a sense of space, whatever it might be, uh, or a sense just of being present. The, I think the claim is that, that that is an entryway to opening to yet a deeper quality of, uh, of presence. So I hope that helps some. <laughs> Yeah. 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 So I think what what's very interesting for me is that there are these multiplicity of techniques. Again, I mentioned just now maybe half a dozen different ways to do that. Can work with koans. I think what they all have in common is that they access a sense of freedom and openness right now right now, that we can access that sense of freedom right now, and it may last for not too long. But we can then access it five minutes later if we want to. If we were doing a retreat with this kind of practice, that's what we would do. We would access this, and then when it faded, we'd access this again, then we'd access it again. We do this all day. And over time, this can get more and more present. You know, and so we'd, it, it gets more stabilized and it gets more deep, I would say. So that this is a complementary method to what we do when we sit for f- 45 minutes. We can also use these techniques when we sit. Really d- similar approach. Um, maybe last one, please. Just in my office, I always kept a picture of a, a monkey. Yeah. That's great. I just take a deep, deep breath, and it's almost a chemical reaction, just breath, and like just taking that moment to realize that it doesn't have to be this way. It's in my control. Yeah. Same thing. It's it's somehow noting we're caught and releasing. In practice, particularly on a outside of a formal meditation. It's very, you know, the other side of this is really knowing with great familiarity our contracted states or our, our um, repetitive conditioned states our, and really knowing those well and then setting in motion a practice like this. That's really, that works hand in hand. So thank you. So I think, you know, the, the monkey image or I think we'll have hundreds and no doubt there'll be computer-related methods for, for doing this, you know, something, you know, something comes on your computer every 30 minutes, you know, and says, drop it, Donald, <laughs> something like that. So I think the, there's a room for a lot of creativity, but the main thing is just to keep, find something that works for you, that's very personal, that works for you, that lets you come back and do it uh, a number of times during the day in your own way. So let's just sit to finish uh, quietly for a minute or so. Being with any intentions which come out of our morning, intentions for your own practice, your own life. And before I close, I'll just remind us that um, these talks Wednesdays are actually accessible to download freely um, on the dharmaseed.org website. 
any of the Wednesday talks are right there to be downloaded. I'll just mention that for those, particularly for those who are here for the first time. So we close by remembering that we practice not just for ourselves but for others and may the fruits of our time together be offered beyond the boundaries of Spirit Rock out into the world for the benefit and healing and ultimately freedom of all beings. Thank you very kindly and hope to see many of you next week and enjoy these what for many are, are busy times, but may they be full of many moments of immediate awakening. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.